Hello and welcome to the Stack Dose Podcast. My name's Matt Young. And I'm Joe Francis, and this is the Expert Dose. Right, hello everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, it's part two. We've got Mark Shadow again. Hello, Mark. Hello. Unfortunately, Joe Francis isn't here, which is why I'm doing the introduction. And I think I think it's going quite well at the moment. So far, so, so far. good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in part one, we discussed uh, an elderly lady who had fallen over and injured her head, and we talked about assessing head injuries, the use of the NICE guidelines, and some of the complications that can occur and how to manage those. Um, part two's we're going to focus a bit more on uh, neck injuries um, and talk a little bit about concussion as well. As we did in the first part, we had a little vignette uh, and then Mark Jadav uh, very kindly talked us through how to assess and manage that patient. So we do exactly the same again. Um, so scenario two, Mark Jadav, are you ready? I am ready. You're pumped and ready to go. You, <laughs> pumped, absolutely <laughs> pumped, yeah. Um, so we have a 25-year-old rugby player yeah. who is pre-alerted to the emergency department. So the paramedics are going to ring through with, a, with an atmist. So the age is 25. The time was approximately uh, an hour ago, say. The mechanism, a little bit unclear. He's a rugby player. The scrum collapsed. He was sort of at the bottom of a, of a scrum slash ruck. Unsure if his loss of consciousness has a, a head and neck injury. Paramedics are pretty happy it's an otherwise isolated injury. They tell you that his obs are normal. GCS 15. They've done a primary survey and can't find any significant injuries um, apart from some neck pain. They've immobilised him with the collar and blocks, given him a bit of pain relief and sent him in to us. Great. Okay, well, he's already blocked and collared, so he's going to be on a stretcher. Yeah. He's um, coming in through our majors area. I don't think we'd necessarily put out a, um, a hospital trauma call or, or um, even an ED trauma call for, for this sort of an injury. Um, we'd probably see him through our usual areas. But we're still going to take an ABCD approach to that. Uh, like we mentioned on the last podcast, it's really important just to put this in the context of the whole trauma assessment. Um, so we're going to do a primary survey and make sure there's no life-threatening problems. Um, let's assume for the moment then that the primary survey is negative and that he hasn't got any life-threatening problems. Um, no, no. no, absolutely. So, <laughs> so um, this young man uh, coming off the rugby pitch, uh, now we're going to go on and assess in his secondary survey whether or not he's got a significant uh, head or, or neck injury. Uh, we, we talked really about the acute assessment of the head injury last time. Uh, and as you say, this young man, he's come back to GCS 15, I'm assuming, and yeah, he's, he's talking to us. Yeah, he yeah. seems oriented. We're not worried about We're not worried about his head, are we? So we can part that for a moment and let's, let's have a look at his neck. Okay. Now you can imagine, I'm imagining that this young man is, <laughs> is strapped down to a, a, yes. uh, a trolley. He's got a block on either side of his head, mm-hmm. um, which is preventing him rotating his, uh, his head to the left or right. Mm-hmm. Um, he's probably also got a, uh, one of those extrication collars on. Yeah. Um, there's one one piece collars uh, which just you can lengthen them, you can shorten them slightly, try and get them to about the right size of the person's neck. 
Um, they're always uncomfortable. Um, they're quite, you know, they're made of quite firm plastic, and which does tend to dig in after a while. There's a bit of padding, but it, it's it's very thin. It's it very thin padding, really isn't it? Help. No, no. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever spent any time in one of them. I, I haven't spent any oh, length length of time. I'm but quite like immobilising the students for <laughs> yeah. educational purposes. For educational purposes, um, okay. just yeah, just so they can appreciate how uncomfortable and how restrictive the the collars and blocks are. They certainly are. So this young man's in a collar. He's getting a little bit stiff in the collar. He's feeling a bit of pressure from the edges and stuff like that. But collar blocks and tape. Now he can't really flex and um, extend his neck very much. He's uh, he can't rotate it either. Um, so it's it's pretty well restricted in in the terms of the movement that he can make with it. Um, and as long as he doesn't start swinging his shoulders around on the bed, then any injury that he has got to his neck is going to stay in the same position until we've finished his assessment, which is great. The first thing I, I would do is set out an approach. Now, I I use the Canadian C-spine rules very often, but there's a lot of different approaches, aren't there? Yeah. Um, I think you were mentioning to me about the Royal College of Emergency Medicine guidelines on yeah. neck so injury as well. The RKM flowchart I find quite useful, but yeah. there's, there's lots of different Yeah, that's it. Um, the ne- Nexus... Uh, was an American one. Um, if the Canadians come out with something, the Americans have to as well. <laughs> and so Nexus was was also brought out to to assess the neck as well. And that's it's kind of even more simple than the Canadian one. But I guess the Canadian one's the one I'm most used to. It, it's it's widely used down here. Um, so that's the, that's probably the one I'm going to talk about today. If that's all yeah, right that's with you. Probably. So the Canadian talks about uh, using three boxes to assess the patient. The first one is: Do, do they have a high risk factor, which mandates them? to have imaging. The second is, if they don't have a high risk factor, uh, do they have a low risk factor, which means that you can safely assess their range of movement? And the third box is, therefore, if you do have a low risk factor, do um, safely assess their range of movement with 45 degrees, uh, turning the head to the left and to the right. And and if you can achieve that, if you can achieve at least 45 degrees of uh, rotation to the left and to the right, then you are expected not to have a significant cervical spine injury. Then we would say that you've we've cleared your C-spine and we would take off all of the immobilizing um, blocks, collar and tape uh, and get you moving. Now, the first box then, the high risk factors, what sort of things are going to be in that box? What we have there is is a collection of things which are going to determine how much energy has been transmitted mm-hmm. into the neck. Um, so, for example, you've got um, a falling from a height, I think it says more than three meters or five stairs on the actual guideline. I don't think we should take that as a literal uh, amount. When when you're writing a a protocol for validating or, you know, to to make up a a decision tool, it's really important to have the numbers down and to make it as objective as possible. When you come back to clinical practice, you realize that one size just doesn't fit all. So they've only fallen 2.8 metres. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't quite work. No, it doesn't. A person who who has no sense of balance at all, um, who who doesn't put their arms out for whatever reason, you've got a neurological problem which prevents you from saving yourself and you go down uh, harder than the usual. You've got a lot of pain. You know, there's there's things which would just tweak it, which would say, actually, it's it's not about just about the height. Nevertheless, uh, height thing is, is, is wise. What about high-speed car crashes? So somebody's uh, rolled their car, they've airbags have all been deployed, etc. There's a lot of energy mm. being transmitted to that person's body, and I think you know. So that high-speed car crash is is a high-risk factor as well. Likewise, if you're an unprotected person being hit by a a big, yeah. heavy-moving object, 
then you're going to come into trouble as well. So if you're a bicyclist or a pedestrian uh, and you've been hit by a car, the chances of you having a serious injury are just so much higher. So those are kind of high risk factors too. It, I think it does actually mention motorised recreational vehicles. Oh. I don't know whether anyone knows any Canadians and, and what they define as a motorised recreational vehicle, but certainly a quad bike, I think, down here in Cornwall would, would fit in that. Probably a Segway as well, actually, now I think about it. <laughs> so if you've crashed your Segway or your quad bike, that probably puts you in a high-risk high risk, um, group, doesn't it? Um, so so those are, those are high-risk features. And then there's a couple of which are really make just make loads of sense, which is, have you ever had any paresthesia in your limbs mm. since this happened? Um, so that just indicates that there's, there's likely to be some kind of neurological injury yeah. going on or potential for neurological injury. And so you've just got to, you know, you're going to have to image the spine to find out whether or not there's a, a problem there. The last one was the axial load to the head. So dropping dropping somebody onto the onto the head like they're diving into shallow water, for example, um, that axial loading again just puts you at so much more risk of, of bursting your C1, uh, and and therefore you really just need to you need to be getting uh, imaging on those patients as well. We've covered the high risk factors there. If they have one of those high risk factors, they're going to need to get some kind of imaging. Canadians doesn't tell you what to image, how to image the patient. Yeah, yeah. They say that you just need imaging. Um, so that could be plain films mm-hmm. of which we do an AP, a lateral and an open mouth odontoid peg view. Uh, or it could be going straight to CT. And really one of those two options is, is where we would start. Mm-hmm. MRI uh, scans we might come to. Um, for patients who've got neurological impairment. Mm. This young rugby player, he's 25. The scrum's collapsed on him. Yeah. We don't know of an axial loading here. He's not complaining of any paresthesia in the limbs? No, so his, his arms and legs are fine. Um, he's got a complaining of neck pain and yeah. stiffness, as, as, we, as we mentioned. When you're examining him, there's a bit of midline tenderness. Okay, um, oh, we're going to come to that now. So that's great. So he doesn't have a high risk factor, so we can assess him for a low risk factor. Because um, if he had one of those low risk factors, we could we could actively get him to to, to move his neck and mm. see if he if he was safe. So the low risk factors, and he only needs to have one of these for us to say that he's safe to to move. Um, so if I, I I read those ones out, so if this is a simple rear end shunt, so you're in a car, you're sitting stationary in the lights, the person behind you hasn't realised you've stopped. Uh, and they've gone into the back of your car. Um, as long as your cars are fairly evenly matched in weight, they haven't been going at a, a high speed, and they've just shunted you forwards, you're likely to have simple whiplash. You're not likely to have fractured your neck here. Your cervical spine is likely to be to be actually intact. Are we allowed to use the word whiplash? Yeah? Ooh, I've whiplash. Been, I've been told off before for using the word whiplash. Yeah. What does it mean to you, whiplash? Well, it's sort of... Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's that. I mean, it's in a, it evokes a, a picture in your mind already, doesn't it, yeah. when you say whiplash? And, yeah. and people understand that, you know, my neck's gone back, it's gone forward, yeah. it's gone back again. And that, that tears muscle fibres and causes, causes the, you know, significant muscle damage to the, to the neck. Are we allowed to use it? I'm not sure who's, who's telling us we can't, so I'm going to... Continue using it until the person that told you you can't use it yeah, comes I, I to was, me. I was told off by somebody because I said it's, it's got legal ramifications ah, for okay. insurance. Great, okay. So I've, I've then been saying it's a sprain of the neck, which is yeah. essentially the same thing. I can't code whiplash in the emergency department. Yeah. I know my, my coding <laughs> system doesn't let me put that down. No, so you're right, they get everyone gets a sprain as well. Yeah. <laughs> 
Just, okay. just a point. Maybe if one of you wants to check it out online and let us know, that'd be great. That's it. Yes, <laughs> that's it. Pa- all power to Put the it, people on this one. Court, yeah. <laughs> the reverse, the reverse classroom. Brilliant. So simple rear end shunt, yeah. um, car on car, rather than Arctic lorry on on car. You know that that wouldn't work either. High speed collision from the from the rear of the car. Uh, all that sort of thing. That's not going to work. But simple rear end shunt, that's low risk, in which case we would actively assess the person's neck. If the person has come in, they've walked into the department, uh, if they've been, they, what the guideline says is a sitting position at any time in the emergency department. So when you're seeing the patient, if they're in a sitting position, then you can take that as a low risk factor. Likewise, if they've been ambulatory at any time since the injury. Yeah. So uh, people who injure their neck, then stay still um, until somebody comes and holds their head uh, and lies them down on a stretcher. That's not going to qualify. But people who've extricated themselves from the car, walked around on the roadside for several minutes until somebody's come along and sat them down, and then after a while the emergency services get to them and then they get immobilised. Well, you can say that they have been ambulatory, um, and you could you could consider that as a low-risk factor. Delayed onset of neck pain? Mm. Yeah, we're really talking about muscular strains, yeah. aren't we? So with a muscle strain, the pain's not usually... You, you may feel a tweak or something yeah. initially, but it takes an hour or two before you start getting an ache in the neck, and then gradually that builds up. And these are the people who come to us the next day and say, I can't move. I woke up this morning, I can't move my neck at all. And so if you've managed to get down to the low-risk box and you find that they've had delayed onset of neck pain, then you can say this is a low-risk feature. And the last one is absence of midline tenderness. Yeah. So uh, if they don't have any of the other um, low-risk features, you do have to assess, do they have midline tenderness? Yeah. I, I get a lot of people being brought in because they've got midline tenderness, yeah. but they didn't have a high-risk feature, and they do have other low-risk features. And so it's really important just to remember that you only need one of these low-risk features to to meet the guidance. Yeah. Okay. So our young rugby player, he's he has got some midline tenderness. Yeah, and the um, pain was reasonably sudden onset. Yeah, from when he sort of yeah reappeared in the world after. Indeed, <laughs> yeah. So and and obviously he's strapped down. He yeah. hasn't been ambulatory <clears throat> at any point. So we've got to say that he has not got a low risk feature. So he's going to need some imaging. And then we've got the question: what, Are we going to use plain films mm. or are we going to use a CT scan? And I don't know what your experience is, Matt, but um, the plain films in young people who have a neck that you can reasonably look yes. look at with your with your eyes, yes. which is not every rugby player, to be fair, no. you kind of think, well, actually, we're going to get away fine with the plain yeah. films, um, especially if we've got no high-risk features, we've got a, a low-risk feature. Mm. I'd be happy with plain films in these young patients. It's, it comes down to the adequacy of the film as well. The yeah. You talked about the views that we get, and you sometimes get the swimmer's view as well, just because you often miss the... You miss the lower parts of the C spine, and actually, if you've got somebody who's got huge shoulders or mm. very short neck because of muscle or, or adipose or whatever, if the X-rays aren't going to pick up all of those all of those bones adequately, then it's probably not going to be that useful. Yeah, exactly. And the the adequacy of your views, you, what you have to see is you have to see all the way from the base of the skull on your X-ray, yeah. on your lateral X-ray of the neck, you see all the way down to that. You have to see the top of the T1 vertebra. And if you can't, if you can't see the top of T1, you can't, you can't say it's an adequate film. And that, the reason for that is that the areas that are most commonly injured uh, include, usually include the junctions between fixed areas of the spine and mobile areas of the spine, which means uh, the cervical spine is very mobile, but the thoracic spine with its rib cage is, is, is fixed. So the junction between the two, the C7-T1 junction, is disproportionately injured. 
Um, so it's really important that we get to see that. And there's lots of examples abounding. Um, I'm sure if you Googled C7-T1 injury, you, you'd see lots of uh, examples where on the, on the inadequate films, you can see nothing wrong at all. But you just haven't seen that. You haven't seen down to the bottom of C7, top of T1. And then someone manages to image that part and the two are just blown up. You know, they're taken way apart. And you think, gosh, how, how on earth could we have missed that on the inadequate film? Playing films in a young person, great. We've stopped doing playing films in older people over 65. Arthritis in the neck causes a, a real difficulty in, in deciding whether a bone is actually fractured or not. Plus doing a CT scan older in, uh, in life means that there's less worry about the x-ray exposure going on to cause cancer later on. So we tend to move straight to CT just because it's going to give you far better views um, and you're going to be able to be sure whether there's a fracture there or not with a CT scan, um, whereas the plain films are going to miss a certain proportion. Other things that would make me want to get a CT scan, so we've mentioned the high-risk features, patients with paresthesia, they've got a bit more than just a transient paresthesia if they've got ongoing any ongoing neurology at all these patients need to go straight to CT. With, with that kind of feature, you, you're thinking, I need to be absolutely certain that the bones are stable before I can move this person's neck if they've got a neurological compromise. So patients with neurological com- compromise, they have to have a CT scan. If the bones are normal, we're going to be thinking, well, what's, in, what's injured the, the yeah, nerves? Yeah. Uh, and then we're going to be moving on to an MRI scan. But everyone gets the CT to check the bones out first. I guess with this young man, we're going to probably try a plain film, aren't yeah. we? Yeah. Let's, so for argument's sake. For argument's sake, let's do it. His neck isn't as, uh, as bulky as we were, we were worried about. Great. Fine. So going back to the case, so this, this chap, he went on, he had some, some plain films. Neck was, was adequate for us to be able to, to do some plain films. And we can't see any abnormality. We can yeah. visualize base of the skull to the, to, to T1 well. We can't see any, any abnormalities at all. There's no evidence of any fracture in all the views. So what are our next steps in terms of ongoing management for this chap in the, in the department? Okay, so we've decided that the imaging is normal. He's still strapped down, of course, so yeah. we want to get him freed up uh, as soon as possible. He's probably getting a bit stiff, quite sore just from being immobilised at the yeah. moment. And I dare say he'll probably need some analgesia at this point um, if he hasn't already had some. So analgesia him. Give, let's get him out of the blocks, collar and tape now that we've got normal imaging and let's assess that range of motion. Mm. I would still assess the range of motion mm. uh, even after normal imaging just because it, it's important to see in patients who have ligamentous injuries, they will have a very, very restricted range of motion and, and extreme pain on trying to move. Mm. So it's important just to be there as they first move their necks, I think. So normal imaging, out of the blocks, collar and tape, uh, and then just give him the instruction, uh, stopping if it causes pain. Can you turn your head to the left? Uh, remember, he's still lying down on the bed at this point, so he's just rolling it to the left. And then bring it back to the midline, and now stopping if there's any pain, rolling it over to the right. And if you say, the, if you say it in those words to the patient, they understand that they're not to push through the pain, they're not to try and be macho about this. They're not jerking them. No, that's it. Yeah, just nice and gently, and, and let's see what the range of movement is. Usually, done within the first few hours after an injury, people can at this point, if they don't have any fractures, they can they can move it fairly well. If you're looking several hours down the line, people are stiffening up badly at this point in time, and, uh, and their range of movement may well be very restricted. With normal imaging, you don't have to get the 45 degrees anymore, okay? If, we, if we'd had a low-risk feature and we hadn't imaged, we would have had to be assessing for 45 degrees. If we, if we hadn't had the 45 degrees, we would have gone 
that we would have gone back into the restriction of movement um, with the collar blocks and tape and we'd have gone over for more for imaging at that point but now we're out of the immobilization we're in assess the range of movement now just for the documentation more than anything else and also that means that I can also give him some pointers as to how uh, movement of his neck is going to go. Um, I usually at this point just ask him to gently lift his head up off the bed, see how well he can actively flex yeah. against gravity. And that allows me to slip the collar out from underneath, which has been causing him some pressure at the back as well, yeah. uh, and make him a bit more comfortable. And then gradually sit the person up. And he's been lying down now for some hours probably. Yeah. Uh, he's going to he's going to initially feel a bit lightheaded when he when he sits up. So just take it nice and steady and get him up bit by bit, okay? If he starts feeling faint, just hold it at that point uh, and, and let him acclimatise to, to coming back upright. It's bizarre and strange that being immobilised on a, on a trolley like this for just a few hours should make such a difference to us, mm. but but it does. So it's important to remember that it's not it's not a benign procedure. No. This isn't something that we should be doing the hell of it, really. No, <laughs> not at all. There are potential complications. Definitely. Um, and you know, it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. I think we may be looking at the death knell of, of these extrication collars. Yeah. I think they are they are going to uh, be phased out. We've mm. stopped using them in children entirely. Mm. There, there's reasonable evidence now that children immobilise themselves fine if encouraged to do so. Um, and you can put blocks on either side just to stop them being whisked around corners as, you, as you're uh, moving them around on trolleys and things. Mm. But uh, we've stopped using the collars. They, the collars are frightening yeah. for children. And, and they they attempt to put you in a in a strange position which you're which you're not used to. Yeah. So I suppose if, you, if you've got a patient who's GCS fifteen and they've got some neck pain and you tell them we're worried that you might have a spinal injury, yeah. they're not going to move their neck anyway. If they understand that. Yeah, if they understand that. Yeah. If they understand that. Yeah. The blocks are good as a as a visual reminder to staff as well. Definitely. That, that this patient C spine yeah. has not been cleared, so don't yeah. just sit them up or jerk yeah. them around. And Definitely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think having that visual reminder is really important. Yeah. I've heard of places where they um, are using soft collars. Yeah. There's, there's, <laughs> there's no evidence for soft collars at all, um, but it probably does make the patient feel comfortable. It certainly yeah. is not uncomfortable like a hard collar. Mm. And it's, a, it's, it's the visual reminder to the staff that you, you need to remember that this person's neck is not is not cleared. It means we haven't decided that there's no significant injury yeah. to this person's neck at this present time. Um, so I've heard of places that are using soft collars. I've heard of places where they're using signs uh, on the patient's bed. Like, yeah, like a little, like a little. Yeah, all well, that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's a kind of little card or something which is which is on the patient's bed, which is saying right. neck not cleared. I haven't heard of anyone writing on the forehead yet, but I'm sure it'll come. Uh, neck not cleared. Yeah, that's right. So, All right, wow. There we go. The future of uh, the medicine is <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. paper we're, we're, yeah. We're writing on it. Yeah. Brilliant. Right, so back back to our 25-year-old uh, chap. So we're slowly sitting him up. He's feeling all right. We're starting to mobilise him a little bit now just to assess his mobility and things like that. He's, he's looking all right. He's got a bit of a, a sort of a mild headache that he mentions, and he's yeah. feeling a little bit nauseous. Yeah, he's obviously a rugby player. He's quite aware about sort of concussion and things, and he's wondering Good. whether this is this is that you know if it's related to to a potential concussion. And he yeah. asks you what you know, what he needs to do. And, okay, we've all got this kind of sense that. Uh, concussion is something that happens when you when you banged your head. Mm. At this point, I usually do take a few minutes to explain concussion uh, to the patient, or at least to explore their own ideas of it. 
because it's important that they go away with a healthy understanding of what concussion is and how how best to deal with it. Mm. So concussion is, in lay terms, it's uh, where the brain needs time to recover. Uh, The brain, like any other part of the body, if it's been injured, needs to heal itself. Uh, And if you try using it too much whilst it's injured, it's going to complain. Uh, So those are the sort of terms I I use um, for, for explaining to patients what's happened to them. So whether you've got uh, contusions in the brain, whether you've got skull fracture, or whether you've got nothing which we would see on a CT scan, you don't even need imaging at all, but you you can still be at risk of getting the concussion syndrome. Usually the onset of, uh, of the symptoms uh, happens hours to a day or two after the injury itself. Its main features are headache, nausea, feeling tired, losing concentration early, having difficulties with memory, uh, more than you would normally expect. And uh, other people can say they've got a bit of blurred vision, they feel a bit dizzy, a bit lightheaded, uh, they don't feel their balance is quite as good as, as it should be. It sounds like a night shift. <laughs> <laughs> so, all those boxes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, and, and there's a good reason for that, isn't there? You know, your brain is not functioning exactly. at its exactly top it peak. Yeah, exactly. So explain to people that this is, this is part of the concussion syndrome is important. It's not normal. None of these things are normal. Um, normal is, is healthy for these people, but it's it's part of a well-understood concussion syndrome, and therefore uh, we uh, we can expect it, uh, and we also know how to treat it. And the treatment is boring rest. Uh, and, I, and again, I, I choose those words carefully because rest means different things to different people. So for a rugby player, rest is... I will, I'll work at, I only go to the gym. I only work at 80%. I won't, I won't get it, give my all. I won't get into every ruck and maul on the, that's not rest, you know. So rest is, is, is physical rest and mental rest. And uh, again, I talk about those two things, but we talk, but together it becomes boring rest. You've got to rest the brain. You've got to rest the body in the initial days. And then after that comes a graduated return to activity. Um, during which physical exercise, building it up, can be helpful. Uh, and that can be over a period of weeks, usually after the first two or three days. So a period of graduated return to exercise, but actually still not usually working the brain as hard as it usually works. Mm. So, so physical exercise at this point, but not mental exercise. And that's important because especially for people who are going back to work or going back to school, who are going to be doing intensive brain exercise, mm. The, that could bring their symptoms back on again. So explain to them, these are the symptoms of concussion. Uh, they don't need any further imaging at the present time. You can expect that they will get better with boring rest and with uh, simple fluids to keep their hydration up. Hydration is very important. And if pain is part of it, if headache is part of it, then simple painkillers like paracetamol, taken when the pain becomes troublesome, but using it that way rather than using it on a regular basis mm-hmm. is better. And expecting only to have to use simple analgesia for a few days, ideally not stretching that onto weeks, um, because if used regularly for two weeks or more, analgesia, even paracetamol, can be associated with withdrawal headaches, mm-hmm. uh, where your headache actually gets worse when you come off the off the drug. And so it's it's important that people are using it for the times when they need it uh, and then withdrawing it um, so that their, their body doesn't become dependent on it. So those three things, boring rest, 
simple fluids, simple analgesia, and that should get them better from the concussion. When do they need to see somebody? Because things aren't going to plan. Nice guidelines suggest a week, a week's review in the GP uh, surgery uh, for anyone that's had a head in imaging um, to see how they're getting on, but also anyone that's still symptomatic at a week's time after their injury. And I think that's really sensible. I, I say to people, go and talk to your GP about these symptoms in a week's time. I don't give them any expectations that anything's going to happen at that point, but it's the start of a review process. It's the start of a consultation. And usually I would expect a GP at that point just to note how things are going, ensure that they are following boring rest. They're going to need a fitness to work note at that point if they're unable to go back to work. So it's a good point of contact for that as well. And then again, the GP can say, well, you know, let's see how things go over the following week or fortnight um, and uh, see are things getting better? Are they getting worse? Are they staying the same? What's going on? Eventually, if people have got persistent problems with this, these concussions symptoms, they're probably going to need to see somebody who specialises in, in neurological rehabilitation. But those people are very far and few, uh, few and far between, and it's quite you know, <laughs> you, we, we don't want to give the expectation that everyone's going to be able to get to see them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's just not going to happen. But eventually, somebody you know, somebody who's got persistent symptoms may well benefit from seeing somebody, a specialist in neurological rehabilitation. Locally, we've got, this is in my trust where I work, we've got um, an OT that runs a post-concussion syndrome clinic. Yeah. She's really good. Actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's a really good point of point of reference. It <coughs> just helps with this sort of that, that functionality, really, is, is the key to getting, to getting a rehab you know, patient's back on track. I think that's a fantastic service, actually, that they, that they offer there. Because it's recognising that there, actually there's a lot of people affected by this. Mm -hmm. Um, it's no small thing, actually. All you know, all of these people having to take a week or or more off work, and then graduating back into work. Especially if they, if somebody goes back to work or school too early, they get a return of symptoms. They can end up actually starting to vomit. They get severe headaches. They end up back in an emergency department. They end up getting a CT scan that they didn't need. And so it is a it's a really significant thing. And I think actually heading that off by giving people the opportunity to come back to an early clinic where they're going to see somebody who specializes in in the concussion syndrome itself is a, is a fantastic resource. Our young man's going to go away hopefully with this uh, this advice. Yeah. Um, we're going to be giving him a head injury uh, leaflet, mm -hmm. advice leaflet, which will go through this, but also go through the symptoms that you would expect of somebody who had delayed onset intracranial hemorrhage as well. Uh, so there's a worsening headache despite rest, worsening headache associated with vomiting. That's a heart, that's a particularly worrying combination of syndrome of symptoms because that really suggests that it's, it's, the vomiting could be due to inter raised intracranial pressure. Mm. Any new onset neurological features. So that's uh, the typical ones again that we're going to expect are going to be loss of coordination, finding that you're stumbling uh, into things, any double vision. Um, weakness or numbness of any one half of the body, as you might expect, sort of stroke-type symptoms. Um, in this case, due to an expanding intracranial hemorrhage. And then, of course, that information that needs to go to the, the people that they're going to be with about how they're going to be observed. And that means seeing if they are, are they as alert as they should be, are they confused, um, are they slurring their words, um, are they having difficulty doing tasks that they would normally be able to do. And if, if those around them are worried about those things, again, getting them a, 
a medical review at that point is really important. Mm-hmm. So that's that's information that we put on our, our head injury advice sheet, along with the, the concussion advice. Uh, and we would have, therefore hope that people will come back if, if they start to get any of those symptoms. Because obviously, we haven't imaged this young man's brain. Yeah. Um, he doesn't need one at the moment. We think he's very low risk, but that's not no risk. Uh, and uh, we do see a few people every year who who do come back with worsening symptoms who have something like a subdural hemorrhage. So brilliant. That's everything we wanted to, to talk about really for, for this podcast. Um, I think we've we've proved the rumour that actually we don't need Joe. Oh no! I can't believe you just said that. I really hope he's not listening. So anyway, Mark, um, have you got some, some little summary points for us to to, to wrap up the, the things we've discussed today? Yeah, sure. So I think I think use use a, a C spine imaging rule decision tool. I think that's important. I say we I use this Canadian one, but there's the Nexus one out there as well. The Royal College of Medicine, Medicine have provided them as well. So do use those. Get used to using them, uh, applying them to to a range of patients, and that that will also help you understand the areas that they don't cover so well, um, where you're going to need to fill in with with um, advice from other sources. Um, so use the rules. Consider concussion yeah. in patients with head injuries. Make sure that patients go away understanding what concussion is and what to watch out for and how it's well treated. Don't underestimate the social impact of concussion. It's it's a big, big social problem. Help patients to, to get suitable uh, reviews and advice if they are getting ongoing symptoms. Um, and the head injury advice leaflets that pretty much every trust should have, mm. make sure that you're using those, documenting that you're giving them to patients as well, so that um, they're going away with wise advice as to when they should be seeking a review of some kind. Okay, lovely. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for coming again. Uh, always nice to see you. Um, hopefully we'll get you back on the podcast at some point. Um, as ever, guys, give us a, give us your feedback. Um, follow us on Twitter. Um, I forgot what it is. That's what we do with you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> 